Now, Governor Ron DeSantis presented his annual State of the State Address to the Florida Legislature. And in that speech, he summarized the key achievements that the state experienced over the past year. He outlined pressing challenges that need attention, and he proposed goals and priorities for action in this coming year. The governor's address serves as a blueprint for the legislature and for the citizens to know what the state's work, what the state's calling is to be this year. And it's also a way to call the the legislature and the citizens of our state to, to unity by showing how we have mutually benefited as a state in the past year, as well as pointing to things that we can work toward as a common goal in this coming year. Now, these kinds of speeches, the State of a State Address or State of the Union Address or the State of a Corporation Address, these have, been, have become customary for political and business leaders to give to their citizens and to their stakeholders near the beginning of a new year. And over the next several weeks, I want to share a little bit about our state of the church. I don't have really any other opportunities to speak to the, the membership as a whole uh, so I'm going to take a little bit of pastoral privilege and use the next couple of weeks to, to kind of address some things in our church, to talk a little bit about where, we, where we've been and where we're, I hope that we will go in the near future. Uh, this isn't going to be then the sort of normal uh, exposition of the Bible that we're accustomed to. We'll still be using the Bible, obviously, when we talk about the church. The authority for what we do as a church, the authority for how we live as a church is rooted and grounded in the Bible. And so we're going to be looking at a passage out of Acts chapter 2 for the next few weeks and really kind of digging deep into that passage. Uh, but I do want to kind of maybe do a little bit more exhortation and application than I'm, I'm normally accustomed to. So I want to start first by kind of looking back and summarizing what has happened in our church over the past year and a half or so. Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. That was a call for Israel to remember the great things that God had done among his people over the generations, to recount all of those things that the Lord had done, all the ways in which he had blessed them, all the ways in which he had moved among them uh, to make them the people that they were. And they return, in, in thinking through what God had done, they return that back to him as praise. Now, the Lord has been incredibly kind to our church, and I, I really just need to probably rephrase that and say, the Lord has always been incredibly kind to our church, whether it's in the, the peaks of the mountains or in the depths of the valleys. God's kindness and God's goodness never changes. But I think over the past 18 months, we've seen God's kindness in, in a different way or in an extraordinary way. In that time, we have officially added three new families to our church, and here in the next coming weeks, we'll officially add four more families. And as you noticed this morning when I made the announcements, I'm going to be doing another Discovering Trinity class. That's the third one now in the past nine months. And we have already two families that are, that are committed to going through that. And we'll see how that fleshes itself out. But if everything stays as I, I expect, that would it be, be an increase of 33% in our church membership since September of 2018. And if you don't believe me, just look around. Look at all the seats that are filled in this morning, right? The last few years has been kind of sparse at times. I know a lot of you have struggled with that. But the Lord's been good to us by bringing us more people. And we thank God for that. That's the work of the Lord, right? Nobody gets credit for that except the Lord. 
Our job is simply to be faithful to him and entrust the results to him. But we do want to acknowledge that. We want to thank the Lord. We want to recount his wonderful deeds. In addition, we've also had twice the number of visitors visit in 2019 than we did in any single year the previous five years. Isn't that incredible? Over twice. Again, I don't, not everyone comes and stays and becomes a member, but it seems extraordinary to me that the Lord is bringing people to our church. He's bringing people to our doorstep. That, to me, is a sign of God's providence, a sign of his blessing. We can also see the Lord's blessing in the financial giving to the church. Our giving last year as a whole was up 20, over 20% from the previous year. And already this year, if you look at January 2020 to January 2019, our giving is up 13%, and that doesn't account what, what offering was given this morning. So we've done 13% more in terms of our giving in three weeks than we did in the four weeks that we had last January. Again, as the church grows, it should be expected that the giving grows as well. But it's certainly an encouragement to see how God is providing for our church. And I confess, those first few years, it was a lot of watching the bottom line. It was making sure that the bills were just paid. But now as the Lord has has blessed our church with, with more financial giving, we have more resources available to us to do more in terms of ministry. But even more than all of those tangible things, I see God's incredible kindness upon our church through the discernible spiritual fruitfulness I see in our membership. And the most tangible one to me is just the sweet spirit of unity that we have in our church. And I'm not trying to, I'm not saying that as a figurehead for the church, right? That would be, you would make that assumption that a pastor would want to say that, right? If the church is fractured and divided, you would expect the pastor to say, we've got a great spirit of unity here in our church. That's what the pastor does. But that's not true. I'm not saying that here just because I'm the pastor of our church. I'm trying to put a good face in the congregation. I have been in the midst of some battles in some other places, and I have the scars to prove it. I have been in churches where it is constantly in upheaval. Member against member, leader against leader, segment against segment. And that just doesn't happen here. It's one of the conversations, one of the comments I get from our visitors very often. Just the sweet spirit among the membership. Just the, the love that we share for one another. It is genuine. It is discernible. It is special. And that is a sign of the working of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God to us. And here I do want to also give credit to our elders because they not only pray for the unity of the church, they not only promote the unity of the church, they not only guard the unity of the church, but they really are proactive to head off issues at the past so that they don't become issues that infect the body. I'm thankful for that unity. It is a blessing. It is a blessing in more than words that I can say to pastor this church because of the peace, because of the unity, because of the sweet spirit we share among ourselves. I also see the spiritual fruit in the spiritual growth among the membership. Now that I've been here for almost six years, I'm able to see how you have grown, many of you, and spending that time with you and seeing how, how uh, when I first met you, not that you were necessarily a bad Christian, but I can see we're always growing in the Christian life, are we not? We should be. We should always be growing. And so I've, I've seen the Lord working among our members to make them more and more spiritually mature. I'm seeing spiritual fruit in your life. And I credit, again, those faithful pastors who have served this church over the years, who've taught you from the Word of God, who've shepherded you well so that you could continue to progress in your sanctification. 
And while I understand that at times in the past the church had a reputation for being heady or intellectual, our theological maturity is inevitably tied to the teaching of God's Word. And I don't want to run from diving in deep. I don't want to run from pursuing the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes from the Scriptures. It is the depth of God's Word. It is the beautiful theological truths that we find in God's Word that propel us to become more and more faithful followers of Jesus. I think we can, I think we have embraced this strong theological heritage of the past while at the same time harnessing this truth as the firm foundation on which we live for the Lord. So it's not just about what we learn. It's how we take what we learn and how we apply it to our lives so that our lives are a reflection of what those truths teach us. So I see the Word bearing fruit in you, and it's different in each person. I see the Word bearing fruit in you as you overcome sin and temptation. As you, as you did this morning, as you sing vigorously in corporate worship, as you lead your families, as you bear witness to Christ in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, as you love the Lord more today than you did yesterday, and as you hunger for His Word to be taught and proclaimed. And that spiritual growth is a testimony to the Lord's working among us. I also see spiritual fruit in how the body desires to live together and to walk faithfully together to pursue opportunities to continue to grow in faithfulness together. So one of the things I just absolutely love seeing is the growth of the Wednesday night prayer meeting, right? It not only indicates a desire to pray, but a desire to pray corporately, a desire to come together and to bear one another's burdens and to pray for one another and to pray for mutual concerns of the kingdom. I'll say more about prayer in another message next week or the week after. I've also been encouraged by the fact that our women's Bible studies have grown in the past 18 months. We now have three, and each of those seems to be prospering well and growing in number. We started a men's discipleship group last January, and it has continued to meet, and it seems to be having a positive impact on those men who are coming and attending. Now, I don't, again, want to, I don't mean to just simply calculate the church's success in terms of things that are measurable people and programs and dollars. I don't want to just measure those things and say that we've arrived and we're the church that, that we're supposed to be. I'm just saying that these, if we look at biblically, in the passage we're going to look at in a minute, in Acts chapter 2, it seems like these things are signs of God's favor upon the church. Just as the church grew and just as the church was healthy and that, that was a sign of God's favor in the early church, we too can see God's moving among us, a sign of God's favor. I've, I've been encouraged. I think we've all been encouraged. We've been strengthened. We've been, we've been refreshed by God's work among us. And we want to give Him glory for that. It's important to remember that we exist solely Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone. And Scripture teaches us, reminds us, that Jesus is the Lord of His church as Bruce eloquently led us in that prayer at the offering, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over the government. He is Lord over our families. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord of this church. He is Lord over us. And because He is Lord then, He may do with us as He wills. 
And if He continues to bless us in these ways that I've just recounted, it is to God's glory. And if for some reason God chooses to work in a different way and the members scattered and all these things that we have, have experienced are stripped away and taken from us, it is to the glory of God. We are simply instruments in His hands. We are His church to do with as He pleases. Our job simply is to be faithful to what God calls us to be and do as a church. So we remember, we recount the wonderful deeds of the Lord. We give Him praise and thanks for what He has done among us. But we are not a perfect church. The Lord has not yet returned for His church. And we still have a mission from the Lord to pursue. Our church is still in the process of being sanctified. We understand that our work is never complete until the Lord returns. So what is the way forward? What is our mission? What should we be about in 2020 and, and beyond? Whenever I think about these questions, I go back to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And of course, all of Scripture informs us as to how we are to live as a church and, and what we are to be doing as a church. But this passage is, at least for me, the North Star of our ecclesiology, of how, how we live as a church, how, how we understand the church, how, how we act as a church, what we do as a church. Uh, this passage gives us a very brief but simple description of the state of the early church. Again, it's not that this church was perfect, but we have a picture of what seemed most important in those earliest days and how God showed divine favor upon their life and witness. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke records for us the history of the church from the time of Jesus' ascension all the way to Paul's imprisonment in Rome around A.D. 60. And as he tells that story, there are points along the way where he stops and gives us a summary, a summary statement about the general state of the church, how the church was growing, how it was progressing. So he's telling these various narratives, stories about what's happening, what the apostles are doing, and then in, in between those, he stops and he gives us these, these summary statements, these, these, if you will, state of the church passages. Acts 2, 42 to 47 is the first of these. And you hopefully will remember that it comes on the heels of the supernatural outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus at Pentecost. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, ten days after his ascension, the followers of Jesus were gathered together for the purpose of worship and prayer. And the Holy Spirit descended upon them with supernatural signs and wonders that indicated that this was a new era of God dealing with his people. Peter proclaimed the gospel, the message of, of Jesus' death and resurrection to the Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit continued then to move supernaturally through that powerful proclamation. And uh, Luke notes for us in 241 that 3,000 people were converted to Christ and baptized on that day, the day of Pentecost. And then Luke gives to us this, this summary statement about the state of the church in those days immediately after Pentecost. And this is what he says. So look at your Bible Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many, many wonders and signs were being done 
to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So from that passage, what is the mission of the church? I want to explore that over the next couple of weeks. But today I want to concern ourselves with the first one that Luke mentions for us in verse 42. It's right there at the very beginning of the passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the church, part of the mission of the church, one of the primary priorities, a significant primary characteristic, a reality in the early church was that the church devoted itself to to biblical teaching. And if we're going to follow in that direction, if we're going to be a biblical church, then the church, our church itself, too, must devote itself to biblical teaching. That's Luke's first observation here. We see that the, 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 the believers that were converted at Pentecost and baptized and began to assimilate in churches devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching here, of course, is the teaching of the apostles, the teaching that they expounded to the church. Uh, The apostles, of course, were the inner circle of Jesus' followers who spent the majority of their time with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Jesus invested much of himself in them as he was preparing them to be the leaders of of this movement that he had started, as as he is going to birth the church following his resurrection. They are going to continue and carry on his ministry. After Jesus' ascension, we know that, 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 that Judas, after he had uh, committed suicide and fell away from the Lord, that the apostles uh, uh, chose Matthias to add to the eleven. And then there are also others who are identified as apostles in the New Testament, like Paul, who continue this, this emphasis on apostolic teaching, who taught the word of God to the church. The apostles led the church. They were the early representatives of Jesus' ministry. They continued the work he had started. They were operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. But their main ministry, the main function, they even proclaimed this in chapter 6 when they had been taken away from this. Their main mission was to teach. They were instructing the church. The content of their teaching included the teachings of Jesus. As Jesus taught during the earthly ministry, they were there. They were They were witnesses of the things he had said. They were expounding these things to the church. They were eyewitnesses of his life. So they reported the various things that he did, gave eyewitness testimony to his life and ministry. They proclaimed the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. In addition, they would have taught from the written Bible, at that time was the Old Testament. And they interpreted the Old Testament through the lens of the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets, how, how his life was a, a living fulfillment of all that, that was promised there by, the, uh, by God in the Old Testament. Of course, the best example of that is Peter's Pentecostal sermon, right? As you go through and read earlier in this chapter, when Peter is proclaiming the gospel, he reads three passages from the Old Testament. That was the word of God, and he is explaining what those passages mean, and he is showing their fulfillment in the life of Jesus. So the apostles' teaching became the basis for the church's discipleship. That's why Christians are known as a people of the book, right? 
We believe that God has revealed himself to us through his written word, and that that word is essential for our growth in Christ. It is essential for our discipleship. That word is life-giving. That's why it was central to the preaching and teaching of the church. Listen to what some Old Testament passages say. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 to 20. God, speaking through Moses, says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening their eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So Israel found life in the word of God. To, to become faithful members of the covenant community, to live out what God had called to them in the old covenant, was to, to know his word and to live according to it. Jesus says something similar in John 15, verses 7 through 11. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So if the church was going to grow into the maturity that God required of it, the apostles needed to teach biblical truth. And thankfully, by the providence of God, the summation of apostolic teaching has been preserved for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So now we have the full revelation of God. We have the entire Bible. And so we need to be teaching the Bible for the sake of growing into maturity as disciples of Jesus. Now I want you to notice in verse 42 that first phrase there, even the very first verb, I want you to notice the intentionality. Notice the purpose. Notice the commitment to the apostles' teaching and thus to their own discipleship. Luke says, to the, says that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. <clears throat> the word devoted themselves literally means to adhere to, to stick to, or to persist in. And in context such as this, it could mean to busy oneself with, or to be busily engaged in, to be devoted to, or to persevere through. In fact, this word is only used ten times in the New Testament. Six of those occurrences 
come in the book of Acts, and two of those times come in this passage, once in verse 42 we just noted, and also in verse 46. This word speaks to intensity. It speaks to intentionality. It speaks to commitment and persistence. Engaging the word, sitting under the apostles' teaching was not an irregular or haphazard occurrence. In terms of time, there was regular frequency for it. In fact, the passage indicates that it seems that they were meeting day by day for this very purpose to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. In terms of of attention, there was a specific and intentional engagement with the word. And I like that word devoted. I like that translation. What are you devoted to? What would you associate the word devotion to in your life? Would you use it to describe your engagement with the Word of God? I came across recently a a survey that polled evangelical Christians, and the conclusion of this survey was that regular church membership can now be defined as attending the Sunday morning worship service twice per month. So if a professing Christian attends church, Sunday morning worship service, two of the four Sunday services each month, according to the paradigm of church attendance in America, that person would be said to be a faithful church member. Now let's apply that pragmatic study, that pragmatic reality to the New Testament paradigm. Would we define a participation rate of 50% with the word devoted themselves? Could we really consider that devotion? Would a husband or wife consider the fact that their spouse only was at home for the seven days a week a sign of devotion? Would Krissa say that I was devoted to her if I only lived at home four days a week out of the seven? Would an employer consider an employee devoted if he only worked four out of the eight hours of a regular work day. I'm hard-pressed to think that's the case. In fact, it sounds more like half-hearted to me. Now, as I was thinking about this, it made me wonder, why is the church so anemic and so sick in our day, in our culture today, in America today? Why is the church so sick? Why is it so anemic? For all of, of our railings, of our many societal ills and the perversion that infects our culture like a cancer. It seems to me that the church hasn't done a very good job of being salt and light. Our saltiness is bland and our light is a mere ember. Where's the church in these days? Where's the devotion to biblical teaching that we see here espoused by this church in Acts 2? How did this church endure persecution? How do they evangelize a pagan culture? How do they make such selfless sacrifices for each other? We'll talk about that in another week. But you see here that they're selling their possessions. They're readily selling the things that they own to give to those who have need. How could they make such selfless sacrifice when many of them have so very little of their own to begin with? It's because they devoted themselves to biblical teaching. They were, they were influenced by the Word of God. They were submitting themselves to the biblical teaching that was taking root in their life and then being expressed in how they lived in the culture that was around them. 
The solution to all the things we rail about is not a new church program or political involvement or cultural relevance, as, as notable as those things might be. But to me, it seems that the solution begins here where Luke points to it in verse 42, with a devotion to biblical teaching. Now, I also want to look here at the corporate nature of this endeavor. Notice here that in Acts 2, this is not a picture of a Christian sitting at home at the dining room table with an open Bible and a notebook and a cup of coffee and a John Piper sermon, although that's not a bad thing to do. Encourage that. But there was a devotion here to one another and to studying the Word together. There's a corporate aspect here. They were coming together. There was one who was teaching them, and they were submitting themselves to it. They were engaging it. They're not simply sitting around, going around in a circle and saying, what does the Bible mean to me? They were looking for truth. They were being taught truth. They were assimilating truth so that they could live. They were encouraged by what the Bible said. They sought for what the Bible, very much like what Joe showed for us last week and taught for us last week at the very beginning. He's introducing himself, his method. What does the Bible say? And then what does the Bible mean? What did, what did Paul mean when he wrote the book of Philippians? And then what does the truth contain there? What is, the, what is he trying to communicate in terms of truth for our lives? And then how do I assimilate that? How do I apply that to my life? It's very much what the apostles were doing with the church. They were teaching truth. And that truth was taking deep root inside of their heart. And so I believe that our mission as a church like this church, the early church, must include a devotion to biblical teaching, discipleship rooted in biblical teaching. Teaching, of course, coming from the Word of God. How do we do that? And really, this is nothing new for a lot of you, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm, I feel like in some ways I'm preaching to the choir. But it's a good reminder. We use the word vision a lot, right? And it's hard to use that word because to me it kind of is like five-year plans and, and spreadsheets and almost like a business model. But this is what the church should be doing. Whether there's five people or 500 people, the church gathers to hear the Word of God. In fact, the, the first way that we can apply this is just by gathering on Sunday morning to hear the Word being proclaimed. I was encouraged. I, I told you last week that I went to a conference the week before in Atlanta and one of the speakers there said that one of the things I learned was that the Puritans did not ever say that they were going to church. They always said instead that they were going to the sermon. I thought it was kind of odd. Because I would expect that most of us are not coming for the sermon. Well, maybe, maybe not. That's not true. But I would expect that most of us... Let me say this this way, because this church is a little bit different than a lot of other ones. I know that most Christians choose their churches on the basis of the music or the basis of the programs, Right? It's almost like we've got a shopping mall mentality. How can the church serve me? How many people truly are looking, are eager when they come to church for the sermon? In fact, the Puritans viewed Sunday as the marketplace of the soul. Just as they would go to the market once a week to buy their groceries or whatever they need to prepare their food, that had to last them the whole week. They saw church as an opportunity to, to be fed and be enriched. They would receive from the sermon all that they would need for their private and family devotions for the rest of the week. That was what sustained them. They were eager to hear the Word of God. And so we can also commit ourselves, unless 
providentially hindered to gather for corporate worship each Sunday, eager, prepared, engaged to be taught the Word of God. And I'll give you my commitment. I think I've shared this before in the past, and I'll continue to make that my commitment, that my intention, my commitment to you is that I will carefully prepare myself physically, intellectually, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, so that I can come and stand before you on the Sundays that I'm preaching to teach you the Word of God. And when I'm not able to try to find those who can. May I be so bold as to ask you also to devote yourself. Some of you are already there. I mean, it's just expected that you'll be here. I remember when I was a kid, I asked my dad one Sunday morning. I might have been 10, 11 years old. I asked my dad one Sunday morning, I said, Dad, are we going to church today? And he kind of looked at me like, you know, I was a little idiot. Like, well, what do we do on Sundays? We go to church? Okay. Why would today be any different? It was just kind of customary for us to be at church so that we could hear the Word of God. It was a priority. So I want to boldly ask you also, just examine yourself. Some of you are already doing this great. Some of you maybe just need to be encouraged and exhorted to make this a priority for yourself. Make it a priority to be here. And can I also further suggest that you devote yourselves to preparing to hear the Word on Sunday morning. Preparations that would include making sure that I'm going to be here. I'm going to set my alarm and be up in a timely manner, get myself ready so I can be at church on time. Getting enough sleep so that you're not nodding off during the sermon. I'm not John Chrysostom. I'm not John Piper. I'm not, I'm not those guys who are known for their oratorical ability. It probably takes some effort to listen to me. And it doesn't help only getting a few hours of sleep on a Saturday night. Let me encourage you to get a good night's sleep. One thing that I'm going to start doing, and Chris can remind me of this as we get into the week, I want to put my sermon, my my passage, into the weekly email, into the bulletin. So you can be reading that through the week and be preparing yourselves and mentally engaging with the text before you even come here so that God can speak to you through his word as we rightly divide it. I want to encourage you to be praying for me and praying for God to use that word in your own life to bring transformation and fruitfulness. We also, so that's the first thing, me just challenge you, encourage you again, devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, to biblical teaching means, I think, first and foremost, coming to church to hear the word of God. That that is an essential aspect of worship. Secondly, we also want to provide other opportunities for you to devote yourselves to corporate gathering, to gathering together, where the primary emphasis is to study and to teach the Word of God. And again, as I said before, we've got several women's Bible studies that are doing this on a regular basis. We have a men's group that's meeting, uh, looking like maybe we'll have... Look at the church this morning. There's there's more more people, there's more opportunities. We'll be looking and praying for, for offering new times and new days where people can get engaged if it doesn't work out with a, with your schedule. I'm also encouraged by our adult Sunday school class. That class has been growing as well, and it's I don't know how many were there this morning, but it, I just peek in there every once in a while. It looks like the class is full. There's an opportunity there. In fact, we will officially, I'm making this announcement for the first time, we'll be officially splitting our children's Sunday school class into two classes next Sunday. We've kind of done a trial run the last couple of weeks, uh, but we'll be having a class for the pre-K to like second grade range and a class for the third grade through sixth grade range uh, for, the, for the children. I'm very excited about that. 
We're also going to be offering a youth Sunday school class starting in the near future. So let me encourage you to find one of these opportunities if you're not currently in one and, and make that a priority for you that I'm going to focus, I'm going to work on placing myself under teachers who will share with me and lead me into the Word of God, teaching me its truth so that, again, the purpose is not legalism. Don't hear me as legalism. i got to come do this and check it off the list so the pastor's going to be happy. I want the Word of God in you. I want it deeply rooted so that you can be a follower of Jesus just as he, uh, he commands us and has blessed us with the opportunity to be. I want Him working in your life. I want you to see and to experience the glorious realities that come with walking with Jesus. That's the point of all of this. No wonder there were supernatural things happening in the church. They were looking like Jesus. They were walking with Jesus. They were experiencing His glory. So I want to encourage you to be a part of that in some way. And again, if, if there's a schedule limitation, there's other, some other kind of factor that's limiting you from being involved in that, then let me know. Let the elders know. We want to be able to create opportunities for you so that you can be devoting yourselves to the apostles' teaching. Third, I think that as a church, we can also devote ourselves to biblical teaching through intense, intensive periods of study. In fact, one of the things, and this is, again, kind of more long-term, no immediate plans here, but you remember, some of you maybe came to our, our marriage conference last spring here at the church. It's my hope that we can do those kinds of things again. We can gather away for, for a Friday night, Saturday morning, a little weekend, and we can devote ourselves to, I'm hoping those conferences will be more topics about the Christian life, what it means to live as a Christian in our world. I'm also borrowing. I planned one. We had to, to cancel it, and I'm hoping to, in the near future, reschedule it. But to, something that other pastors call boot camps, where we just gather together for just a couple of hours and just work our way through a book intensively or work our way through a, a biblical theme or a theological topic. Just some intensive engagement with the Word. But again, I'm not trying to justify how we live our lives in the culture, but just kind of to retreat away and devote ourselves to biblical teaching. And the last thing I'll mention in regards to devoting ourselves to biblical teaching kind of comes from an idea that, that Pastor W.A. Young had, and he may have even done. I know at one time that he was working on a seminary for the church and kind of using it as an opportunity to train people more in the faith. And I don't necessarily need to say seminary in the sense of we're just trying to train people called to the ministry, but I think that there should be a certain sort of baseline of, of what we should know as disciples and followers of Jesus. And I'd like to see a dedicated path to meeting those, that baseline, to meeting that, those minimum expectations. So, for example, what do we want a new or young Christian to know about the Christian faith? There should be certain things, right, that every new Christian should know and understand about the Christian faith. We should provide a dedicated path for that person, for those people. How can more mature Christians grow in the Christian faith? How do we expect our te- what do we expect our teachers to know? We should do some kind of some teacher training or, or leadership training. How can we how can we help our leaders become more effective in their service? These are some things again that I'm I'm thinking about and praying about. I'm just kind of throwing out there that you'll pray with me in this because I really want to make sure that we're doing this well. I feel like if we fail here, we failed our mission as a church. We must devote ourselves to biblical teaching, to the apostles' teaching. We're going to put a pause there. We'll consider other things in the passage next week, but I want to conclude with this. In his commentary on Acts, John Stott writes these words about the church, early church's devotion to biblical teaching. It's, it's beautiful what he writes. I wish I could write like this. 
The very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, He was their only teacher that they needed and they could dispense with human teachers. On the, com- on the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. Since the teaching of the apostles has come down to us in its definitive form in the New Testament, contemporary devotion to the apostles' teaching will mean submission to the authority of the New Testament. A spirit-filled church is a New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to New Testament instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. I think that's what's thought right there is true. And I want it to be true of us. We are a New Testament church. In fact, I believe that because the word church is on our sign out there, it means something. And I think it means partly this, partly what we're seeing in Acts. Because we are a New Testament church, because we want to strive to be like this early church, we must devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching so that we can grow to spiritual maturity that proves that we are indeed disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. It is sufficient for everything that we need for life and godliness. It is sufficient for the church. Lord, we love this church. We are thankful for what you have done in this church. Lord, we cannot boast of our methods or our philosophies or our eloquence or our planning or our strategies. They are nothing. They are wood, hay, and stubble. What remains, Lord, is what you have done. And because of you doing these things to the glory, we say hallelujah to you. We say praise the Lord. We say all glory to you. And Lord, in saying that, we also submit ourselves to you. That Jesus Christ, your Son, is Lord of the church. That we rest in full submission to Him. That we desire His Holy Spirit to move through our congregation so that we can be a true and faithful church. We want to stand out, Lord. We want to be salt. We want to be light. We want to declare the glory of God in this community. We want to show a picture, Lord, of what a true and faithful church is and should be. So, God, we ask for your help. We understand that we are not perfect. We understand, Lord, that we need your spirit to continue to work. That some here, Lord, we may need to repent of our sins, repent of our lack of devotion to your word, to your truth. We may need, Lord, to commit ourselves once again. We may need to seek the help of your Holy Spirit to encourage us, to help us to walk in the truth. God, we just lay our lives before you. We lay our church before you. Help me, help those who teach, teach faithfully to rightly divide the word of truth. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this model. We thank you for this example. We ask now by your spirit you'd help us to walk in their, in their pattern. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With the brothers who are coming this morning to serve, go ahead and come at this time.
we sang about it this morning, that the foundation of the apostles' teaching, the foundation of biblical doctrine and testimony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what the apostles were teaching was indeed the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. They were unfold, they were proclaiming that. They were unfolding the mystery of what that meant. They were unfolding the implications of what the gospel meant for the Christian life. And lest we forget, we come to this table to remember the very foundation of all truth. We recognize, again, the foundation for how and why we live our lives to the glory of God is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we invite all who are walking in a relationship with Christ, if you have believed the gospel, if you are trusting in Christ, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come to this table and to join us in this celebration. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to stay at your seat. No one's going to judge you. But there is a warning in Scripture for taking these elements in a way that, that is not right uh, there's a judgment that could come for receiving these elements in the wrong manner. And so we just ask you to respectfully stay in your seats. But this table is a table of the gospel. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread that was before his disciples as a celebrate the Passover. He broke it, and he said that this is my body which is broken for you. cup and said this cup is the cup of my blood shed for you relationship with God and so now as we come forward to receive these elements we too proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ we once again raise it as the banner under which we walk it is for his glory and his glory alone that we live this life. Let us come and eat and drink.
Please stand. Oh, my. 
is mine forevermore. Paul, in the book of Romans, says, For I am convinced that neither uh, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, no height, nor depth, no other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is from our Lord Jesus. And he's able to say that because Jesus and John... Chapter 10 says, My sheep hear my voice, and know, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And as we just sang, I, I want you to go from here rejoicing. O oh, my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone. And hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Amen.